being very careful with his words when he said seasoned uh, mothers, and then uh, he kind of dug a hole for himself, so we won't uh, go any further with that. But a couple things. I just want to share you next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be having a baptism, maybe a couple of baptisms, so you want to make sure you get here on time. We'll be doing that at the beginning of the service. And then also, those who knew Ed, Ed King, he passed away this, uh, this past week, a uh, real faithful uh, servant of God in our, in our midst, and that f- service will be this Wednesday at 2 o'clock. Well, this morning, uh, we want to now jump into another new section in God's Word as we look at what God has for us. We're in a series called Questions Asked and Answered, in which we're doing a number of different things uh, in terms of trying to learn what God has for us. Uh, one, in terms of just hearing what we have each Sunday morning, but also giving you an opportunity to make this interactive. If you've got questions, we'll give you our best answers, put on the website or, or get the word back to you. Sometimes the questions are asked in our life groups, and they're answered there, and sometimes we'll put them on the uh, website as best we can. But to begin this morning, I just want to ask you a question. How, how many of you like to eat? Anybody like to eat out there? Okay. Uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty popular activity. Uh, it's kind of uh, not only a, um, a sport for many of us to find the best uh, food to eat, but it's also a necessity. Some of you probably have your favorite restaurants or your favorite places to eat, and some of you might even have favorite food. Sometimes you go to a restaurant for the first time, and you're thinking, well, should I, should I venture off and order something I've never ordered before? And I won't show, raise the hands of which of you are that kind of adventuresome type to order what you have never tried. Um, but sometimes you might be in a situation, you're at someone's home, and, and they didn't give you the menu before you came, and all of a sudden you're at the table, and all of a sudden they serve something on your plate, and they're right in front of you, and you're thinking, what in the world is, is this? And, and you're thinking, am I going to be able to survive eating what I don't know what it is? Well, it's interesting, and the story we're going to look at today, this actually happened to God's people. They, um, they were given some food from God, and they called it manna. And manna literally means, what is it? And sometimes when we think about what God is doing, that's kind of our response. You know, what is God doing, and, and what should I learn from what he's doing? And that's what we're going to try to do today, as we see uh, what God has for us from the Gospel of John. Now, we've been urging you to, or at least not urging, but encouraging you to read through the sections as we prepare for Sunday morning. And this uh, past week, you're supposed to read it through John 1 through 11, and, and some of you are looking like me. I didn't hear about that homework assignment because we haven't urged you too much. But I'm going to give you a reprieve because we're going to slow down as we go through the Gospel of John, and we're going to take it in thirds rather than halves. So we're going to spend three weeks in this Gospel. So um, this next week, uh, start reading through the first half of the book, and you'll be just right on top of it. John is in a unique book in many different ways. In fact, each gospel is, as we've been looking at God's Word. So far, we've looked at Matthew, we've looked at Mark, and Luke. And those three are what's called the synoptic gospels. And you might have heard that phrase before, but just like manna, you're thinking, what is it? What does the word synoptic mean? It really means to see together. And the three Gospels, if you read them consecutively, uh, you begin to wonder, well, why am I reading something over and over and over again? Because they basically took the same accounts, looked at it from a slightly different perspective, but they did a lot of things seeing it together. And that's what synoptic means. But when we get to the Gospel of John, we now see new material. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, you see almost all of it included in the Gospel of Luke. But in John, you have uh, what's called new material. In fact, 90% of what's in John is not in the other three Gospels. And, and there's some things those Gospels have that John doesn't have, and there's some things John has that they don't have. For instance, it's interesting as it relates to the Gospel of John, some things he left out, what we think would might be somewhat important, he forgot about Christmas. 
He really didn't say anything about Christmas in, in the Gospel of John. And actually, when you look at not only the beginning of, the, of the, the physical life of Jesus, Christmas, he, he didn't really say a whole lot about what's going to happen in the future. There are a few sprinklings within it, but we don't have what's called like the Olivet Discord and the Gospel of Matthew and some of the details about Jesus' return. Uh, there's a variety of other things. We don't really have Jesus healing any demons or casting out demons or he- healing lepers in the Gospel of John. Uh, there's some things that, that uh, we don't have the Sermon on, on the Mount, which is repeated in different ways in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. And, and so there's some things that he doesn't attach himself to in terms of giving us God's message. And as I was telling you, the, the word gospel means good news. It also simply means God's story or good story. But what he does is he particularly wants to put in our hearts and minds uh, a, a major truth. If Matthew was trying to just put in our heart and mind that Jesus came as a king, as a Messiah king, uh, Luke turned it around and said, I want you to understand that not only is he an exalted royal one, but he is the perfect man. And then Mark brought it down to 11. I want you to understand that, that he came to serve. Jesus came not to, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So we have Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah king. We have Mark, Jesus being uh, the servant and in Luke, we have Jesus, the perfect man. In John, we see Jesus Christ is fully God. And what I'm going to do over the next three weeks is, is give me an overview of the book, which we've tried to do, and then I'm going to center on a passage each Lord's Day to kind of look at not only the forest, but also look at a tree here and there. And so as you look at the Gospel of John, you need to understand a little bit not only about kind of his big idea, he's emphasizing the deity of Jesus, and uh, the others are primarily looking a lot about his humanity, is that we want to get a little bit of a clue as far as who wrote this book. You know, who is John? If he had a particular perspective on telling us God's story, where did it come from? Uh, you know, Matthew was a tax gatherer. He was rescued by that Messiah king and was brought into the family of God. Mark might have been even a teenager when he first saw Jesus streaking through some of the stories in that particular gospel. Uh, Luke was a Gentile. He was the only non-Jew among the four writers. And John was one of the closest companions of Jesus. You had the 12, but within the 12, there was, a, there was an intimate three. And some say there was even a, a closer companion, and that might have been John himself. He was Jewish, Palestinian in nature, and he knew a lot about the geography. You'll see that in some of the things as you read through John carefully. But there's some other things about John which are interesting. In John 21, it speaks about John. In fact, in, fact, in the Gospel of John, he is never mentioned by name. It's mentioned as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, one of the things that's not in the Gospel of John, they're in the other three Gospels, the mentioning of the 12 as a list is not there. Uh, but as, as you think about the, the disciple that, that, that Jesus loved, uh, there's an interesting thing about that. Throughout the life of, of John, he is known as the apostle of love particularly truth in love. But many of us don't realize where he came from in terms of God changing his life. Because he was one of the sons of Zebedee. In fact, it was a brother tandem. There was James and John. He had Peter, James, and John. He was always listed after uh, James, so he's probably the younger brother. And you would think that he was always kind of that tender-hearted one that, that always thought of, of being kind and serving. But we also know that he was also known as the son, one of the sons of thunder. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9 just for a moment. I'm going to let you camp in one particular section in, in John in a moment. But in, in Luke chapter 9, we see a little bit different side of, of John. He, he had a little bit of a temper. When things ticked him off, he, he rather had a violent way of expressing that. And sometimes he hid that in terms of maybe trying to protect Jesus or, or to promote what Jesus was doing. But in Luke chapter 9, we had the occasion of Jesus... Um, heading toward Jerusalem and going through uh, Samaria. And uh, we pick up the count in verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, this is Jesus, that he, Jesus, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey of Jerusalem, which simply means why should we accept you when really you're much more for the Jewish nation? And Jesus was really there to receive them all, but he, he, they were rejected by Samaritans. Now, that's ticked off John and James. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, quite frankly, I, I think that ought to be a philosophy of ministry of Grace Hills. When you don't do anything I want you to do, I'm just going to call down fire just to consume you. I mean, this was his attitude. He, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't called a son to thunder for nothing, all right? He had an anger issue. And when things didn't go the way he thought they ought to go or the way he thought God wanted them to go, he wanted fire judgment to come down and consume somebody. Well, this is, this is the backdrop of the, the, the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is uh, one of the four Gospels. He also wrote three epistles, three little epistles toward the end of your New Testament. And then he wrote the last book of your Bible called the Book of Revelation, which looks at the end times. So he didn't say a whole lot in his Gospel about the end times, but he, he made up for it in writing an entire book about it later on. Well, this morning what I want to do, I want to give you an overview of the book, and then we just want to look at one particular chapter. Um, the, the way that we're going to go through the Gospel of John, I'm going to give you an acronym and an acrostic like it did last week. And we don't see it all the first week. But as you go through these chapters, you can see some things that begin to unfold the, the heart of, of what John wants to communicate. In, in chapter 1, and we're going to look at Jesus for the first five chapters, uh, Jesus is, is the Word. Uh, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, just for a moment, and then I'm going to let you camp out in chapter 6 uh, for the rest of, the, of our time together. But in John, chapter 1, we begin with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I remember the very first time I was in a Bible study in high school, uh, we were asked to uh, come to this group and read the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and be prepared to talk about it. And I couldn't get back to the first verse. I, I said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm saying, what in the world and Word is that all about? Because uh, it was a mystery to me. Well, who is the Word? Well, the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. Turn to verse 14. It explains who that word was in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's that referred to? Jesus. And so as we think about this Jesus, this Jesus didn't have a beginning at Christmas. He had a beginning at the very, very beginning because he has always been. One thing we ought to realize about life, what God has said about life, is everyone on this planet is going to live for eternity. The question is, what location? In the presence of God 
are away from the presence of God. We have an eternity future. But what we don't have is an eternity, what? Past. There was a time when we were not. But they, there was not a time when Jesus was not. In fact, we even sang about this earlier in the service. Jesus was and is and is to come. And so as we look at Jesus, we need to understand that the Bible is very clear, and John is the author of that, is that Jesus Christ is fully God. If we understand what's called the doctrine of Christology, is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the God-man. And if we look at Jesus any way different than that, then we miss the message of God's Word. So chapter 1 begins with Jesus is the Word. And who is the Word? The Word was with God and has been from the very beginning. All things came into being through Him. Then in chapter 2, we have an exit of the money changers from the temple. Now some of you are familiar with the story of Jesus, and you, you remember that right before Jesus went to the cross, that He cast out all the money changers from the temple. But really, if you read through the New Testament carefully, there were two occasions of that. There was one at the beginning of his ministry and the one at the end of his ministry. And chapter 2 records that as well as one of his first uh, miracles. Then in chapter 3, we have have the second birth. The second birth is that uh, section in which Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night. And if you're in a life group this week, you'll be studying chapter 3. And if you're not in a life group... You do have homework to take home, all right? It's in the back of your outline. And, and at that point, you have Nicodemus coming and asking the best question you could ask is, how can I really connect with God? And Jesus puts it as plainly and as clearly as possible. And we'll see that in a moment. In chapter 4, we have an unusual encounter with a Samaritan woman. If you ever want to see how Jesus interacts with people and explains the message that he came to give, read carefully John chapter 4. And you'll see Jesus talking to someone that other people would not have expected him to talk to because one, she was a woman, one, she was from Samaria, one, she had a rather shady background, uh, but Jesus reached down into heart and gave her living water. Then in chapter 5, you have uh, a sign or statement that Jesus is equal with God. You know, as you think about the claims that Jesus was God, he came not only from his own words, and not only came from his closest companion, his disciples, but also came from his enemies. Right after he uh, made a, performed a miracle, they said, you know, why are you uh, picking up stones to kill me? Because you being a man, make yourself out to be equal with God. So again, as you think about the message of the New Testament, you miss it all if you miss who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is fully God. Chapter 6, we have uh, Christ is the bread of life. And chapter 7, we have hatred and rejection of Jesus. Well, this morning what I want to do is, I, uh, that's kind of an overview, real quick overview. There's, there's going to be things we'll be seeing in, in weeks to come. Uh, the number seven is prominent in the Gospel of John. You have the seven miracles of Jesus or the seven signs that point to the reality of who Jesus is. And there's a kind of miracle that closes the, the book. You also have the seven I am statements, and we're going to look at one of them this morning. Uh, the, the book is filled with amazing truth about Jesus. In fact, many times, basically what you have here is you have explanation about Jesus rather than looking at simply the acts, acts of Jesus or long discourses by Jesus. Okay, 
if you were to look at the Gospel of John, you might be asking yourself the question, well, what would be a key verse that you would want to remember out of the Gospel of John? There's a couple we could look at, but I want to use one that probably most of you have never heard. Uh, John 3.16. How many of you have ever, you probably never heard that, right? John 3. Okay. L- let's say that. For those of you who know that verse, let's say that verse together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, as you think about the heart of the gospel of, of, of John throughout the gospel of John, what he wants to do is he, he wants to present Jesus fully as who he is. And this verse has been used throughout Christendom to explain clearly and plainly what it means to come into relationship with God. It begins with understanding that, that God loves you. There is a plan that God has for your life. But there's a, there's a problem with that plan is that we've messed it up. And we're, we are headed toward perishing. But he sent his only son so that wouldn't have to happen. But there's a response that we must take. And that's faith. We need to believe in him. Can I give you one other trivia in the Gospel of John? John uses one word over and over and over again in his Gospel. He uses the word believe 100 times. If you were to take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'd find out that they only use it maybe 50 times. He uses twice as much as all three other writers. Why? Because at the heart of John is to present an evangelistic message for people to understand. There are two reasons why people don't embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. One is they've never heard a clear presentation of what it means to know Jesus Christ. What what Jesus Christ came for. That They need to understand that they need to admit their need and turn from their sin. They need to understand, they need to believe or trust in him that he he paid the penalty for their sins and rose again. They need to understand it needs to come to a point where they need to commit, commit to follow Jesus, Lord, God, and Savior. Some people have never heard that message. The other reason is, is people don't want to. They want to live their own life. They want to just let God uh, be wherever he wants to be, but they want to be their own person. And so what John does throughout this gospel is to plead with people's hearts to consider what Jesus has done for them. This week, again, in your life groups, your own personal study, you'll look at an encounter with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night to find out what it means to come to faith in the one who came for, for everyone. That's a key verse, John three sixteen. But what I want to look at today is chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a long passage, and there's so many things we could talk about in here, but I want to I put it very simply. As you look at coming to know Jesus, you have your outline just on the back of your, of your outline this morning. Believing in Jesus. There's two things about believing in Jesus. Number one, it's easy, and number two, it's hard. Number one, it's easy, and number two, it's hard. So if you want to take a nap, that's my whole message this morning, all right? When you really look at what Jesus is calling for people to do, it's very, very easy. And it's also very, very hard. The Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 6 begins with Jesus doing one of the miracles, interesting enough, that's repeated in all four Gospels. This is only true of a few things where all four Gospels have the same account. 
And it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's interesting what happens to that. We don't have to, we're not going to take the time to read it out of John 6 for a moment. We'll read a few, read a few passages out of there. But in John chapter uh, 6, what he does there is he records the dilemma. The dilemma was Jesus preaching and teaching. All of a sudden, it's time for people to eat. They look around, and there's not enough food to eat. And, and so the disciples have to come up with a solution. And one of the other gospels, he said, well, we, we just got to sit in the way. One way to deal with an argument is to throw it away. Somehow ignore it or just let it push it off to somebody else. You've got to solve your own problem. Uh, there came another solution. Well, we could see how much money we got. And uh, in the Gospel of John, it says we got 200 denarii, which is a considerable amount of money. But to feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, counting the women and children, now it's over probably over 20,000, 200 denarii would not even touch it. So... Their finances, their own resources wouldn't work. And, and so they're, they're in this dilemma. So they decide, well, maybe we ought to just see what we have resources. So they go out there and they find they can only find one sack lunch. The little boy had, uh, you know, five loaves, a couple fishes. And they said, well, maybe, uh, well, we can't divide it. And so what they do is they finally understand they just need to bring it to Jesus. And what Jesus does, he multiplies the food and he feeds everybody. He not only feeds everybody, but he has what? Leftovers. How many like to eat leftovers? We got some, some people, some people, it's a religious thing not to eat leftovers, all right? Man, I take my food home from the restaurants. If I pay for it, I'm bringing it home, all right? But anyway, they, they, uh, they have leftovers, and they're just amazed by that. And then there's a response, and this is the key part of it, because what John does, he gives an editorial comment about the reaction of the people. Look at John chapter 6, look at verse 15. After he feeds them, in fact, look at verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. John records this particular reaction to the miracle because what happened when they got this free lunch, they said, Well, (laughs) we have got our our Messiah. We've got the one who's going to provide every single need that we have. And they were rushing to make him king. And you'd be thinking, well, isn't that what Jesus wanted? Didn't he want them to, to crown him king? Well, we have a commentary here is that he took off when he we saw that's what they were about to do. And it didn't surprise him. And the reality is that Jesus wants us not to just look to him to meet our physical needs. He wants us to understand that to crown him king is, is to crown him king of our life. That he is going to be the one in charge. It's not looking for a free lunch. What Christianity is receiving Christ, even more so than anything else, more than God's peace, more than God's direction, more than God's answered prayer, it's receiving Christ. And they didn't want to receive Christ. They wanted to receive a free meal. And it's illustrated in the rest of, of John chapter 6. What happens, Jesus takes off. In fact, he sends the disciples away on a boat. He didn't, doesn't get on the boat. Of course, Jesus doesn't need a boat because when they went across, he decided he wanted to get across. And what he did is simply walk in the water. He only, John only records a part of that. And then they get to the other side. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the multitude run around the lake. And they now find where Jesus is with the disciples. And that was a dilemma to them because they go, well, how did you get here? We know you didn't get on the boat. 
And uh, that was a kind of a dilemma for them to figure that out. But anyway, they went into a conversation as far as what, uh, what they wanted from Jesus. And they, and they wanted more free food. And, and they wanted to, to follow after him. And in fact, Jesus responds that way. He says, I know why you came. You didn't come to see me. You came to get food. Verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most surely I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs or the miracles that pointed to who I am, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because the Father has set his seal on him. Now, what they did here is they totally misunderstood what he was about to, what he had just said. He was talking about the gift that he could give them. But what they looked at, well, what can we do to earn it? Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, that's a great question as well, isn't it? If you're interested in spiritual things, if you're interested in connecting with God, you might say, well, God, what, what is it you want me to do? What can I do to earn your favor? What's most important for me to do? And look at the response of Jesus. It can't be any easier than this. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. How is it how easy is it to connect with God? It's as easy as simply believing that Jesus is the savior and lord of this world. And, and what we mean by believe, believe doesn't mean simply to agree intellectually this is true. But it's to trust in, rely upon, live your life in relationship to but, you know, they didn't still get it. And so Jesus puts it in a different way. Um, as he, he responds to their question, look at verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. See, they were asking the question, well, how, how can this be that you want us to believe in you? Are you saying you're greater than Moses? I, I know you gave us a free lunch, but how about Moses? I mean, he gave us free lunches for how long? 40 years. Now, w- what comparison is here? 40 years with Moses and one meal with Jesus. <laughs> you don't understand. Moses didn't give you anything. God gave you the food. Moses was just a human instrument. But you have much greater here in your presence. And, and then he begins to identify. He goes, um, verse 34, then, then he said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Well, if you can give us bread that, uh, from heaven. And then he said, and Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. See, they were again looking for that which was physical. They were looking for that which would meet their needs at that moment or maybe the day after. He said, this is what will satisfy all of your most important needs is to recognize I am the bread of life. And he who partakes in me, who, who receives me, will never hunger again spiritually. See, as you think about how easy it is, it's recognizing that he is the source of life. He is the one that will give life now and for forever. 
on, on Wednesday at 2 o'clock, we'll be remembering Ed King. And in most funeral memorial services bulletin, maybe you've seen this, they'll, they'll say uh, born, and they'll put the date there, and then they'll say entered into eternal life, and they'll put the date there. That's, from a Christian perspective, is, is really not a accurate statement. Because you enter into eternal life, described by John 3.16, when you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you could have three dates on that. Mike Johnson, born July 14, 1952. You can put that down, at least the July 14th part, in case you want to remember. Okay. It, then you could say, it, you know, eight years later, and I can't remember the exact date, but that's when I entered into eternal life. Now, when I die, whenever that is physically, th- then I will be in that part of my eternal life. But my eternal life began when I received the bread of life, when I trusted in Him for my eternity, when I trusted in Him as, as my Lord and my Savior. It's that easy. It's that easy, but it's also hard. Because, you know, it's interesting about Jesus as a preacher. Jesus, uh, Jesus could draw a crowd, let's be honest. I mean, he could draw a crowd in a variety of different ways. I mean, the one who could turn uh, his first miracle in John chapter 2 was he turned water into wine and that kind of broke up that uh, wedding ceremony. I mean, they were, they were crazy about that. And, and Jesus could walk on the water. Disciples were pretty amazed by that. In John chapter uh, 6, he fed the 5,000. And, and people would just uh, race to him when you he heal every disease. But, you know, he could also break up a crowd. And, and we're going to see this at the end of John chapter 6. Because as he had them right there, simply do the work of God, which is believe in me, Understand that if you'll receive this bread of life, you'll last forever. He he knew their hearts. And they were still thinking of the physical. They were still thinking, well, so if I do this, then I'll never have any problems getting my next meal. I'll never get sick. I'll never have a relationship that goes badly. If I'm not married now, I know I will get married. I'll never be filled with anxious thoughts. I'll never have a prayer answered not like I want it to be answered. See, he wanted them to understand that partaking him as the bread of life, their hope was in him. Not what this world had to offer. So how did he break up this crowd? He began to using some analogies that they didn't particularly connect with. Look at uh, verse 47. Most surely I say to you, he who believes in me has the everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Again, all good news. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that the one may eat of it and not die. So he's speaking, this is so much greater than the manna that lasted for 40 years. This is manna that will last forever. 
I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the light of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among them, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he feeds on me, will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your father ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Can you imagine what they were thinking? What do you mean? We're supposed to be a cannibal to get eternal life? We're supposed to break apart your flesh and gnaw on it and and whatever blood you have, we drink of it? What was he saying here? He said, you've got to take everything that you believed in before and understand that I'm the complete fulfillment of it. It's not the flesh of the the lambs that were sacrificed on the altar in the temple. It's my flesh that will be sacrificed on the cross for you. It's not their blood that was poured out thousands and millions of animals in the past. It will be my singular sacrifice that will count. What was their response? Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Verse 65 says, and he said, therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. The word disciple means follower. There were those who had followed Jesus. But when they understood that he said, you've got to put your total trust in me and me alone. At that point, many of them left and followed him, not later, but never again. And why was that? Because their faith at that point had been superficial. It it looked real on the outside, but it wasn't true on the inside. They they were trusting in Jesus as some potential person who would meet their physical needs. But they weren't looking for someone who would meet their spiritual needs. They hadn't come to him as, as being poor in spirit. Those ones who wanted the world and him as well. If you've ever uh, been there, I haven't been there, but I've read about it. You know, Diamond Head on Oahu, I think it's in Oahu. It's interesting uh, in reading about that particular occasion why it's been called Diamond Head. It's not because of the shape of the kind of the volcanic, you know, look of the, that particular mount. It's because earlier explorers, when they saw that from a distance, there, there are some there's some stones within the mountain, and from a distance, they, they have a bright look to them. 
And as they were coming up to that shore, they thought, we have come upon this mountain that's filled with diamonds. But the closer they got, and when they got to the shore, they realized that these weren't diamonds on this mound. This cheap calcified stone, which looked precious from a distance, but was nothing close up. As we think about it, it's easy to say you believe in Jesus. But is he the one that you believe in and trust in, rely on, and him alone for your eternity and your relationship with God right now? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he used that image for us to understand, well, how do you partake of really this one who came for us? Now think about it for a moment. Even as you think about food, when, when you eat anything it begins with having you know unless your your parents are making you eat your vegetables because somehow there's something there that you want do you really want to follow jesus secondly as you think about eating not only do you have to really want what uh what's what's there there's got to be some hunger there you ever, have, you ever, have you ever stuffed yourself and somebody brings something else out and you want to eat, but you just can't take one more bite? Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that we must hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, that means we want to have him more than anything else in this world. If you want to partake of Jesus, you've you got to really want to. Number two, you've got to have a hunger for that which you do not have. And then thirdly, as you think about putting something in your mouth, it, it does take a little bit of faith, doesn't it? I mean, if you go to a restaurant, you don't know who's back there putting all that food together. <laughs> and even when you go to somebody's home, you don't know what they, what they put in the ingredients. But somehow you're, you're just believing that whatever they're going to put there, it's not going to kill you. It's going to make you better. But finally... You know, when you think about eating, and Jesus is the bread of life, eating is, is intensely personal, isn't it? Uh, when, you, when you like to, to be able to uh, go through life uh, having a perfectly healthy diet every day, but, but it wouldn't be you eating, it'd be somebody else eating it for you. you know, you, 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 you can eat all the stuff you really like, but if somebody else is being really restrictive on their diet, you know, what they're eating counts for me. You know, they're going to eat all the vegetables. They're going to eat all the fruit. They're going to drink the 64 ounces of water. Who really does that? 64 ounces of water. They're, they're going to 